You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that hopes that they don't adapt this episode's storyline on the new Arrow TV show. a sort of final ending, last hurrah, final meetup edition of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from the cover date June 1990 until the cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. This time out in the books, it is kind of an ending point. Um, we're ending the Green Lantern books with a meetup with Green Arrow, which or you people who love the Denny O'Neill run, should be a wonderful thing. For you people who think Green Arrow is not that great a character, well, you might be justified as well, because it's not the best thing that the Green Lantern book has put out. Unfortunately, it is the ending of the storyline that's being written by Gerard Jones, so this is sort of the sad, inauspicious end to his run on this great series of comics. It's kind of sad that he kind of went out on this basically a down note in the comic book but the other sad news is this is the last issue of Guy Gardner as well yes it even says it on the cover the last issue of Guy Gardner which is really strange because I think the Guy Gardner series runs for another at least 20 or 30 issues so I don't know what the heck they're saying here but there's also some guy uh, in the background that's looming over General Glory and Guy and uh, I guess his name is Militia. And he is every ridiculous 90s stereotype bald into one. He's an interesting character. We'll get into him in the book. But in all honesty, both of these books sort of serve as turning points in the character story arcs. Uh, one with Guy Gardner, of him losing his power rings energy and gaining some goofy-ass armor. And... Well, another thing happening to Hal Jordan, which I'm certain we'll get to within the next couple of weeks. But as for now, I'm going to uh, play a couple of promos, as I always do, for some excellent podcasts that I love listening to, and hopefully you would love listening to as well. And when we get back, we'll see if we've got any mail, and then get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 47. So, we'll see you on the other side of the break. 
disturbance in the Force. You always sense a disturbance in the Force. I don't like this. Really pissed me off. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. The Bronze Age of Comics, an era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. And on a side note, I'm really looking forward, uh, it's probably already out by the time this episode is out, but definitely go check out Charlie's other podcast, Charlie's Geekcast. I believe it's supposed to be coming out on the uh, 1st of January, uh, 2013. Hopefully the uh, Mayan apocalypse hasn't happened, but you never know. But speaking of apocalyptic things, I almost said that correctly. Let's go ahead and check out the Just Run the Guys email bag. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And we start out with returning Canadian listener and all-around awesome guy, Mr. Scott Davis, who's replying to an email that we went kind of back and forth with. Scott writes... Ha, I agree with you, Sean. I'm turning 36 later in December, so I really appreciate things I grew up reading, too. To clue you in, Scott's writing back to me about me mentioning that I really enjoyed the comic books that I grew up reading, and it's kind of fun to go back and read them again. He continues, Unfortunately, I wasn't reading comics back then, but I'm having a great time catching up on these comics from the 90s. He then goes into Issue 11, Fun Issue, and Great Art. That was the uh, third part of the uh, Guy and His North storyline. Uh, I agree with him there. Really good. You know, a lot of people I've heard now are kind of down on Joe Staten. And, uh, again, I would really like to promote him. and think that he's a perfect match for the Guy Gardner series. But my opinion may differ from yours. I don't doubt that. Going back to his email, issue 12, well, Nort just gave up Hal's location, which I thought would definitely kill his chances of ever becoming a real Green Lantern due to lack of willpower, but later it turns out I'm wrong. I love how Nort saves Guy at the end, though. Amazing artwork by Steve. 
The reveal of the new Green Lantern Corps members on page 19 was a bit uneventful, though. The three new members just don't seem very menacing, like the panel was meant to reveal. Larvox with his squiggly arms and the diamond head dude? Turns out Larvox sports an awesome mullet in issue 13, though. Good hockey hair. <laughs> I love that. Yes, Larvox does sport a excellent sort of red mullet. And the thing is, I'm not really certain if that's a femme mullet or an actual guy mullet, because I think Larvox might be asexual or might actually be a female in the Green Lantern books. Uh, I haven't done that much research into it, unfortunately. I'm thinking she might be female, but you never know. These aliens, it's hard to tell. The same thing goes on with Brick and this other character from the Legion book, Strata. Supposedly, they're supposed to be female as well, as well as the character of Aa, who was in uh, the Green Lantern stories around the Flicker storyline. So, gender lines are kind of blurred in the uh, comic book industry. But I will agree with you, uh, Staten did some great artwork, and I really loved the guy in his North storyline, and I'm glad that you were able to enjoy it too. Uh, if you guys haven't read it, uh, it's an easy pickup now. Comixology actually has all four issues of the Guy and His North storyline uh, ready for purchase and download on the Comixology site. Not that I'm in any way affiliated with that, but if you want to eat, read these issues in a nice format, if you've got an iPad or a, even an iPhone, uh, it's a, a pretty easy to do. Uh, I've read a couple of things on Comixology on my iPhone, and it goes from panel to panel, so it's an easy read. iBooks, I've found not so much, but maybe that's just me. Tangent over, I'm going to go back to Scott's letter. It says, Issue 13. This looks like our first glimpse that the Guardians have become evil. It's suggested that they purposely put an alien in Jon Stewart. Well, not technically, but I think they probably knew about it and just let it happen. Poor John always goes through crap in his life. Yeah, in fact, John seems to really get the short shrift in the Green Lantern book. I mean, first the whole thing with the mosaic storyline happening, and then the ending of that, and then afterwards, uh, during the whole, well, what's coming up, John really gets hurt by, uh, I think, somehow he gets paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, eventually that gets retconned, of course, but, yeah, John doesn't really have that great a life. It's amazing how great a hero and how great a character he's been and actually becomes in the later part of this series. Going back to the email, uh, Scott writes, What's with the Shugs being shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with the Zudarians? Don't they remember the slaughter a few issues ago? This threw me off, and... I can see how that threw you off as well. Uh, the fact that these two warring factions are finally coming together to try and get things done just really seems kind of rushed. I don't think you'd be too happy with some people that were just slaughtering and maiming your people, I don't know, even months ago, might even be weeks ago, but yeah, maybe they're just a bit more forgiving than we humans are. Back to letter again, so Nord is a GL. I think this only makes sense that the Guardians are now evil and doing it to mess with Guy. But shouldn't Hal Jordan have a say because he's responsible for the recruitment? Would Nord pass the GL recruitment test? Um, probably not, but the Guardians actually in the issue had final say, and they gave sort of a weird and wonky reasoning to why Nord needed to be a GL. I mean, the reasoning was kind of wonky, but 
it was there, so... Plus, it also allowed the Guardians to be creepy and funny in a way, so there you go. Scott finishes saying, Thanks again, Sean. It's great listening. Well, thanks again, Scott. I actually really appreciate you writing in. I'm glad you're reading these issues. I'm glad you're finding them somewhere, either digitally or um, in your comic book shop. I know Comixology also, I don't think for some reason they printed issue 13 of Green Lantern, and they've gone up to 14, so they're going to start in on the Mosaic storyline. But uh, definitely check out. Uh, Comixology seems to be uh, reprinting these ones, and since we're probably not ever going to get them in collected form, uh, this would be the best way to go. Uh, surprisingly digital, amazingly, may be the way to go for uh, finding comics if you can't find them in the uh, back issue bins. But my next letter comes to me from awesome guy and all-around great podcaster, Mr. Thomas DJ. He's the host of Better in the Dark with his friend Derek Ferguson. Excellent podcast. Go check it out. Plus, he also occasionally posts a podcast for DJ Comics Cavalcade, where he covers issues of Green Lantern and the Silver Age. He covers the Teen Titans. And plus, every Halloween, he covers issues from sort of the darker comics, including Phantom Stranger which deals with that jerkweed Dr. 13. And he also does, I think, some Man-Thing stuff, which is really excellent Steve Gerber stuff. Definitely go check out his podcast. Also go check out his site. Plug away here. Why not? I'm already plugging. Uh, Damn Your Ears, Damn Your Eyes, or Die Die, as he likes to call it, where he takes uh, basically a bunch of pop culture stuff, recently a lot of Doctor Who things, and gives gives 10 reasons on why you should or shouldn't watch this. Tom's a really excellent writer, and he's uh, going to probably be uh, a guest on the show pretty soon because uh, we've got some things coming up here in a few uh, well, a few episodes that would require the awesomeness of Thomas DJ to be on to talk about them. But Tom's letter goes, By the way, I've listened to your most recent episode, and I wanted, I wanted to illuminate things regarding the monkeys which I am proud to claim to be a fan of. That's completely cool. Thanks, Thomas. While it's true the band was intended to be a fabricated band to support a TV show, much like the Archies, three of the members knew how to play the Archies. I did not know that. Uh, Peter Tork, a folky from here in New York City, Mike Nismith, and Mickey Dolans. Yes, Dolans was chosen because of his success in the previous TV series Circus Boy. Never heard of that one, no. Uh, but he was an accomplished drummer, and he was, without a doubt, the best vocalist in the group. Okay. And while the Monkees did begin mouthing other people's words, they began to write their own material in the series' second and last season. And the, th- uh, the last three or so albums, for if you count the soundtrack to Head, one of my favorite films, were composed of all their material. Okay, well, you know, I, I apologize for dismissing the Monkees. I was, I was never a Monkees hater. I watched their shows when they came out around, oh, it was probably in the mid to late 80s when they were playing on MTV and Nick at Night. I thought they were all fun shows, but in general, it looked like they were just a Beatles ripoff that were trying to be sort of the analog of these boy bands that were coming out in the 80s, the new kids on the block and such as that. I had heard that only uh, Nesmith was the one who actually had any musical talent, but I didn't know it was only uh, Davy Jones who was the one without any real musical talent. So, you've uh, illuminated me on this. I appreciate that, Thomas. 
uh, Thomas can use on. So, yeah, prefabricated, yep. But they weren't the glorified karaoke singers of American Idol and Ariel. Oh, come on now, Thomas. You can't deny the fame and musical talent of such greats as Scott McCreary and Chris Allen and David Cook and Ruben Stutter. Okay, point taken. Yes, the American Idols have put out some pretty lame finalists. Anyhow, Thomas finished up. Looking forward to talking talking to you in a few weeks. And that's kind of a hint. Yes, I will be talking with the awesome Mr. Thomas DJ here in a couple of weeks. So I guess that's something to look forward to. Unfortunately, what we have to look forward to today is Greenlander number 47. So let's go ahead and bite the bullet and get this one out of the way. Greenlander number 47 was cover dated November 1993 with a release date on September 21st, 1993. Cover price was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and $70p UK. The title was This Is Now. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler this time around was Scott Collins, inker Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Bracanza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Crouched in a darkened alley, Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow, launches another projectile at his foe, who seems to be phasing in and out of of existence. Cursing how he hates aliens, Ollie is suddenly strangled by the whip of... Flicker. The flame-headed fop knocks out the Emerald Archer and says how he admires heroes such as him and Green Lantern, a hero he looks forward to meeting again soon. Cut back to Coast City, where an enraged Hal Jordan is asking how Green Arrow and Tom Kalmaku were kidnapped. Carol says it's due to her connection with the Crosswind Corporation, and Hal says that Olivia Ann Coulter wannabe Reynolds was supposed to meet with a wealthy client in Crosswind's Corner, Nevada. And with all plot elements falling into place, Hal scoops up Carol and heads out to Crosswind's Corner to find out some answers. As they approach a large mansion in the middle of the desert, a couple of yellow missiles launch at our hero, causing him to drop Carol. But rather than becoming a red splotch on the Nevada sand, the missiles break open and wrap the falling Ferris in a lovingly creepy electronic tentacles. Freeing her, somehow, Hal and Carol crash through the window of the mansion to find the person behind this is none other than Carl Ferris, Carol's supposedly dead father. Hal doubts that Carl is who he says he is, but Carol vouches for him, saying that he knew things about her that no one else could know. She also says that he was the one who was funding Hal's air business, and the one who sent Deathstroke after him to keep him preoccupied. However, Hal still isn't convinced, and rightfully so, as Carl Ferris decides to attack Green Lantern by breathing fire on him. Hal blocks the flame and some Matlock-era kick-assery ensues until it lands a solid hit with a ring construct, taking down Carl Ferris, who, shockingly enough, is an android. With the fight over, Hal calls for Carol, but she's been taken by someone during the fight. Hal rushes off to find his former love and runs into... Green Arrow. Meanwhile, Flicker is dragging Carol behind him, monologuing all the while about who and how awesome he is. He finally releases Carol into a room where Flicker is holding captive Tom Kalmaku and Ann Coulter wannabe Olivia Reynolds. Thinking she's behind all of this, or just having a seething hatred of Ann's political screeds, Carol leaps into the red-headed hussy, taking her to the ground. But Tom breaks up the catfight, saying that Olivia isn't to blame. This opinion is confirmed when a second Carl Ferris walks into the room, saying that they're here to protect Carol. Back with the two green guys, 
Hal and Ollie are making a plan to rescue Carol and the mask. To bicker about their petty ideological beliefs, girlfriend issues, and other overtype BS. Until they realize that they can get chummy after they let loose with this issue's prerequisite amount of Fighty McFeinstein. Copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. A duo break down the door, engaging the match-headed malcontent, until Ollie shoots an arrow at Flicker, who phases out of the way, letting the arrow strike Carol on the chest. Enraged, the now three copies of Carl Ferris turn on Flicker and breathe their Sinestro-like fire on the villain. Seeing that he's outclassed, and also being a pretty lame villain, Flicker buggers off, saying that he will be back for Green Lantern. And with that, the true mastermind behind all of this, Christine Ferris, runs out to check on her wounded daughter. But Hal had used the ring to stop the arrow from killing Carol, but not enough to keep her from being shocked by the impact. So, with Cress's averted, Carol and her mom have a heart-to-heart leading to her wanting to stay with him. Hal offers Ollie and Tom a ride to the nearest TV by Fridays, and Olivia drives off in her motorcar. Upset that the funding for her line of Green Lantern action figures turned out to be a bust. To make matters worse, the prototype of the Green Lantern doll has had its head broken off. And as Olivia ponders why it looks more like it was cut off than broken off, the readers are treated to a close-up of the menacing Sinestro doll leering at the Green Lantern. Like I said at the beginning of the show, this is it. This is the last issue of Green Lantern to be penned by Gerard Jones. I mean, it's been a great run, and this is a bit of a downer issue to go out on. It wraps up the story elements that he's been hitting at for some time, and brings back a villain of his own creation, and leaves it with a neat cliffhanger ending, but all in all, it just kind of falls flat. I'm not certain, but I think this might be why Jones's run on Green Lantern might not be considered as great as other writers. It kind of ended with a thud. Secondly, the art in the book is decent, with Collins doing some really nice work on the characters. But the backgrounds are really kind of sparse, and oftentimes they're just a single color or even the Green Lantern symbol. So it's kind of, like I said at the beginning, an inauspicious end to the uh, wonderful run that Gerard Jones had on the book. It's had its high points and its low points, but more often than not, its high points were far outweighing the low points. It was a really good run, and sadly it had to end on this, which, although not a bad issue, definitely doesn't... Well, it's not the way I think that a person would want to go out. But we'll go ahead and look more into the issue, uh, starting with the cover, which is a really nice image of... It's a really nice image of Scott Collins' art showing uh, the arrow and the lantern. Very typical of what you'd see in the uh, Denny O'Neill run. Uh, I like the image of Green Lantern here. I like the image of uh, Green Arrow. But Hal looks like he could really use uh, some chinderware to... uh, cover up that chin butt of his. Chinderware! Frank's wearing the basic brief while I'm sporting the bikini cut. It also comes in boxer, Italian bun hugger, and of course the Joe Namath knitted slingshot brief. (laughs) They're affordable, comfortable, and leave no visible panty line. The cover leaves me a bit uncomfortable. 
Moving on, uh, page four. It's nice to see that Hal has the uh, construct arm sling and knee brace that he had from last issue. Uh, in his fight with Mongol, he got his arm broken and his knee all torn up. So it's nice to see that kind of continuity uh, brought forth into the book. This was something they could have easily gotten rid of. Page six. This panel's kind of, or this page is kind of wonky. Uh, Hal beamed Carol away so that the missiles would attack him. But the missiles were yellow, and when they surrounded Carol with their creepy hentai tentacles, Hal was able to beam her back to him, and he essentially used her as a human shield to get rid of the tentacles. This would be okay if it weren't for the whole yellow thing, so it's just kind of a wonky and awkward panel. Then on page 8, panel 5, oh crap, Carl Ferris must be Kurigarian, because he's breathing fire. I mean... The Sinestro statue did that in the Guy in His North storyline, so you've got to assume that all Kurigarians can do it, and Sinestro can do it, so therefore, Carl has to... Okay, it doesn't make any sense, anyway. Just another example of breathing fire from weird alien robot things. Page 9, panel 5. Uh, plus, Carl has Shogun Warrior-style fist-firing action. So, that's kind of neat. Uh... Now I'd really like to have a DC Direct version of this Carl Ferris, where he breathes fire and fires his fists at people, and maybe transforms into a car as well. That'd be pretty cool. Page 13. Olivia here must have just come from my Grateful Dead concert, because, wow, she looks a bit baked in this panel. And, oddly enough, uh, Ann Coulter is a big uh, Grateful Dead fan, if you can believe that, uh. There's actually an article on the internet where she uh, reveals how big of a Grateful Dead fan she is and how much she actually likes the people who follow the dead. So, kind of interesting. Uh, Same page, panel three. Ooh, catfight between Carol and uh, Olivia Reynolds. Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't end the way that I'd like to end with uh, both of them and their underpants rolling around, but we don't always get what we want. Moving along in the story, as my notes are kind of sparse, on page 19, panel 6, we get to see that it was actually Carol's mother the entire time calling the shots. So, okay, whatever. I guess, you know, it makes as much sense as anything else in this book. Page 20, panel 5. So, Christine had three exact identical versions of her husband made. Why is the only thing running through my mind the question of them being fully functional versions of her husband? Ugh. Creepy old person three ways. The four ways. Oh, duh. Don't think about it. And then finally on page 22, panel 7. Oh, joy. We get an evil Sinestro doll. As the Sinestro doll has turned his head to look at the broken-headed Hal Jordan doll. Neat. Unfortunately, this is a story element that won't be carried over into the oncoming books, and I think is kind of sad, because I would have liked to have seen where Gerard Jones would have went with this. But, uh, that does it for this book. Usually I cover ads in the uh, Guy Gardner book, because the Guy Gardner book is about a month ahead and has ads that haven't been in most of the other issues, but I would like to cover an ad that's in this book that's I haven't found in the Guy Gardner books. So it's on the final 
it's on the back inside cover. It's a Superman ad, and uh, it's got Superman uh, rescuing some people. It looks like it might be Jurgens doing the artwork. I can't really sell. Can't really tell. Yeah, it looks it looks kind of like Jurgens, and it's Superman in his reincarnated form with the longer hair, and uh, it's got Superman rescuing some people, and uh, basically there's flood victims and all this, and it's a really nice. PSA for some of these uh, charitable organizations. And it starts out with some kids uh, in this flood water holding on to a tree yelling Help! And Superman comes flying in saying, It's alright son, I have you. Thinking to himself, I'm doing what I can. And the next panel is he's rescuing the kids. Superman thinks, But there are people, but these people have lost their homes. Everything they own. The next panel we see Superman looking at the uh, reunited family thinking to himself, Thousands of people need food, clean water, and shelter. As the family says, thank you, Superman. Superman then again flames, thanks. This flood is too devastating for me to make an impact all on my own. In the final panel, we get this awesome shot of Superman pointing at the reader, saying, Call one of the numbers below and offer your help, please. It's the American way. And then it gives donations for the uh, Red Cross, the American Friends Service Committee, Farm Aid, the Salvation Army, and the World Church Service. And it's a really nice, dynamic PSA, and I love it when Superman comes out and tells people to do their part. The idea that Superman can uh, save the planet uh, in these awesome ways, but really can't be there for everything, is one of these issues that I really love about the character. Superman's there to do the big things, but when people need uh, help uh, with uh, smaller issues, flooding, tornadoes, uh, you know, natural disasters. Sometimes Superman and sometimes these heroes can't be there, so we have to rely on the actual heroes in our midst to deal with those. Firefighters, police officers, public responders, these are the people who honestly are the true heroes, and the fact that they've got Superman telling us to go support these heroes and support these efforts is really awesome. But that does it for my Green Lantern coverage. Let's put in a couple of promos here and we'll come back with some awesomeness that is Guy Gardner number 16. Twenty-seven years ago, the planet Krypton was destroyed. An infant boy and his cousin survived and have found a refuge here, on Earth. But they were not alone. Another scion of the House of El has arrived. Why is he here? What is his purpose? And how will Kal-El and Kara Zor-El respond when faced with Hell on Earth? The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a podcast that covers the current adventures of Superman and his family of characters. Join John Wilson, J. David Weeder, and guest host Charlie Niemeyer as they review and discuss this latest crossover adventure. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is available on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. Hello, boys and girls. 
It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm, lolcats, lolcats, porn, lolcats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast, or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can, until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? And we're back. So let's go ahead and start into our coverage of Guy Gardner number 16, which was cover dated January 1994 with a release date of December 7th, 1993. Cover price was $1.50 US, $1.95 Canada, and 70 p UK. Titanless timeout. Total Warfare. Writer was Chuck Dixon. Penciler was Mark Tenney. Anchor John Strangeland. Letterer Albert Guzman. Colorist Anthony Tallon. Assistant Editor Eddie Braganza. And Editor Kevin Dooley. In a scene that's a weird mixture of John Woo and Michael Bay, Woo for the Doves and Bay for the Ridiculousness, an armored Iron Man wannabe plummets towards the manufacturing wing of an Asian synthetic cocaine factory. Okay. Lacking in any amount of subtlety, the metal mercenary crashes into the building, blowing it up real good. From there on, he goes about mopping up the survivors by blowing the living excrement out of them with stereotypical 90s-sized guns. Having finished killing everything in sight, and causing enough property damage to make it look like a Packers fan celebrating a Super Bowl win, the readers are finally introduced to our antagonist, Militia. Meanwhile, in the Big Apple, Guy Gardner is bemoaning his fate after saving the planet from himself. You did listen to the last episode, didn't you? You really should. Michael Bradley was on it. He was Chad Krogerific. Hi, Michael. Anyhow, Guy pays for the paper he was reading and flies off, recapping the last storyline as well as his relationship with Ice. Realizing that he's been in the same clothes for a couple of days... Guy decides to head to General Corey's apartment for a quick shower and a change. Admiring the star-spangled hero's life, Guy hears the door open and turns to greet his former teammate. But instead, he gets a Stalin-smashing left hook, which sends him flying out of the apartment. 
It seems that since General Glory didn't have cable, Twitter wasn't invented yet, and Guy's heroism wasn't on the daily news, the good general thinks that this is the evil clone guy. Guy tries to tell the story of him being kidnapped by aliens, cloned, and having his memory sucked out by a facehugger wannabe, but the general is hearing nothing of it, and the obligatory Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out. The, the two mightily tussle, with Guy being unable to convince the general that he is who he is. Finally, before they bring the city down upon each other, Guy offers up a compromise. He allows Wonder Woman to tie him up. Uh, with a magic lasso, pervs, jeez. This ensures that he's telling the truth, and he and General Glory make up and head out for a nice dinner on the town. Cut to a nuclear power plant in northern Africa. Our red, blue, and yellow armored merc is tearing up some troops who are making weapons-grade plutonium for a terrorist strike. The general says that he's been taken as a human shield and is turned into a thrown explosive with a grenade shoved in his mouth. The blast took out the cooling tanks, putting the reactor into meltdown and ending Evil's hopes of a dirty bomb strike. Walking slowly away from the explosion, because cool guys always walk away from explosions, Militia boards the chopper that has come to take him to his next assignment. A female member of the Quorum tells Militia that his next assignment will be taking down a single man. Militia sees the dossier and says that he's been waiting a long time to take down this one. And on the final page... You see, Militia's next contract hit is going to be on one Guy Gardner. Well, what we've got here is another fill-in issue, setting up a pretty ridiculous 90s stereotype villain for Guy. However, this villain might be a bit more than he seems to be, as there's hints to a possible connection with our ginger hero. Other than that, there's decent art by Tenny and Strangeland, nothing to really write home about, but better art than I thought was done in the last issue by was it, Chris Hunter, but... Nothing really to write home about, like I said. Uh, I'm still waiting for Bird and Davis to come on, because they really take over with the artwork and give it a, a cohesive feel. But it's a nice transition issue between what we'll get from Bird and Davis, so there you go. And speaking of Bird and Davis, they have basically got the cover art here, and we get our first look at how the artist will be handling the characters. Guy looks a bit more muscular than he did when Joe Staten was drawing him. He looks more like a bodybuilder than he does a running back. A lot of people, well, I don't know, I've never really heard too many people say what they, what their opinions were of Mitch Bird's artwork, so it'll be interesting after I put these issues out whether I get any feedback on uh, people's opinions of Mitch Bird, so we'll see how that turns out. Okay, on the page one splash, how do we know this is a 90s character and this character is extreme? And by extreme, I mean X-T-R-E-M-E. -E, or maybe a couple of extra E's in there. You never know. Let's see. Let's go through the checklist. Um, shoulder pads. Check. Cold tube leggings. Look like every tendon in his thigh is about to explode. Check. Skydiving from 35,000 feet with no parachute. Check. 
Yeah, I think we've got ourselves a pretty stereotypical 90s action character, villain, whatever he is. We'll find out sooner or later. And on pages 2 and 3, we finally get some uh, internal dialogue from this character. And to make it extremely 90s and extremely extreme, I'm going to read it in my best Arnold Schwarzenegger voice. It goes something like this. The temperature rises more than a hundred degrees as he descends around the unnamed island chain in the South China Sea. This is horrible. A science lab founded by an Asian crime syndicate is working on a synthetic form of cocaine for four seconds to impact. They're six weeks from a successful product. Project cancelled. Oh, sweet lord, that was the worst Schwarzenegger I think I've ever heard. I'll try not to do that ever again. Page 6. If Deadshot, Deathstroke, and Cable could mix their DNA into a frothy union and create a life form, I think the character that's on this page would be it. I mean, ridiculously big gun, the eye thing, eyepiece over his right eye, the ridiculously must muscled, cybernetic-looking legs, the... Oh, wow, it just screams 90s. Moving on to page 7, panel 2, uh, the headline of the paper is kind of weird. It says, Starlet Weds Dwarf in Sky High Ceremony, and I'm looking at the picture, and I'm not really certain who these are supposed to be. I'm not certain if there was a small character who uh, married a dwarf, or a person who married a dwarf at the time, or if this is a reference to maybe Oberon, but I don't think Oberon married anyone. I'm wondering, now that I think about it, if it might be the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman wedding. And I'm going to check IMDb real quick to see if that's the case. <laughs> And nope, it can't be Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, even though that would be appropriate. They were married on December 24th of 1990, so that's a bit in the past for it being them. So who knows, if anyone's got an idea who might have married a dwarf around December of uh, 1993, write in and let me know. Page 9, panel 3, we get Guy monologuing about wanting a new direction in his life. Obviously, this is pretty much foreshadowing for what's going to be coming to uh, Guy in the next couple of issues. There is going to be some big changes in his life. You can guarantee it. Then on the same page, panel four, wow. Mark Tenney must really enjoy drawing teeth because Guy's got a smile that's about as big as the rest of his face. That's a huge set of teeth there. Uh, I guess I'm just noticing that because I just finished reading uh, the Collateral Damage comic from uh, Howard Chaikin. It's not going to be something I'm going to be covering, but it did have Guy Gardner in it, and Howard Chaikin just decided to draw Guy just smiling all the time with big teeth as well, and I didn't like it and not liking it here either. Moving along in the book, because most of it's a bunch of fighting with Feitenstein, uh, page 17, panel 1, we get 
pretty clever thinking on Guy's part to have Wonder Woman tie him up with the magic lasso in order to make him tell the truth. Plus, it leads to the innuendo that Guy drops at the bottom of the panel about wanting to be tied up by Wonder Woman later, so there you go. Then, of course, on panel three, as Wonder Woman is walking away, we get this look on Diana's face uh, that she might actually be interested in a little bit of the uh, tying up, if you know what I'm saying. So it just furthers that idea that I think Thomas DJ put out that Wonder Woman and Guy might have uh, eventually had some sort of relationship going on, which I think would have been incredibly awesome. Page 19, Militia takes a live grenade, stuffs it in the captured general's mouth, and throws him at the target. Thank you, 1990s. I appreciate your over-the-top violence. Then, of course, on page 22, there is a hint that Militia might be taking this hit on Guy Gardner a bit personally. I wonder what that could mean. Slowly stroking my chin. But we'll find out more about Militia later on. Maybe a couple issues from now. But that does it for my coverage of the Guy Gardner books. Let's go and see what kind of 90s-centric ads there are to sell things to kids back in the day. And if you want it extreme, you're definitely going to get it with this game for the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. I guess it's called Jim Power, The Lost Dimension in 3D, and it features a ridiculous rocket-packed shoulder pad-wearing gun-toting person uh, firing lasers or whatever at missiles and tentacles and all this stuff, and supposedly the entire game is in 3D. In fact, it it states that it's the only true 3D game with special glasses included. I'm certain it was the stereotypical uh, red-blue glasses, and I'm certain the game probably gave you eye strain and was just horrible. 3D's a fad. I'm not really into it, and the fact that everything now is being converted to 3D again, it's just... It smacks of marketing gimmicks, so... Not a fan of the 3D stuff now. Definitely would have been a fan of it back then. A few more pages in, we get Gear Up, the new Game Genie for Game Gear, and I guess the Game Genie isn't going away yet. They're trying to manufacture their stuff. Initially, it was for the NES, then it came for the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. Now they've got it for the Game Gear as well, which is the uh, portable version of the Sega Genesis. So if you want to cheat on the uh, Game Gear games, which I think there are maybe five of, the Game Genie was the thing to buy. Next page, we get the Match Made in Hell, Robocop versus Terminator game, and again, I went to the uh, S Sega website, the www.ssega.com, and uh, tried playing this game, and eh, not my favorite. The graphics are pretty good, but uh, kind of a difficult game to play. Uh, um, as most sort of side-scroller shooters at this time were, uh, but like I said before, I think last issue, the uh, comic was really good. Then a couple pages on, proving that they would make skybox cards for anyone, we've got the Nightmare Before Christmas skybox trading cards. Nightmare Before Christmas was a really groundbreaking film. I'm trying to remember whether Tim Burton actually directed it or whether it was Harry Selleck. I want to say it was Tim Burton who did, but Selleck pretty much 
define the sort of animation style that was used in the film. And he went on to do movies like Coraline and James and the Giant Peach. So, uh, fun movie, but collector's cards for it, I, I guess. There's been weirder things. And speaking of cards, we get Fleer goes to the hoop with Drexler. And I guess it's Clive Drexler, I believe, who's a, a uh, basketball player for the Portland Trailblazers. I guess that's who they are. But it's uh, the, uh, I guess, the 1993 or the 1994 set of Fleer basketball cards. I've made my peace with this. Skipping over a majority of the fight scene in the middle, we get a fight scene in a comic book page, To Be or Not To Be. This smash hit SNES title, title is now available for the Sega Genesis. It's best of the best championship karate, where you train to uh, fight in a karate ring with various characters. It it looks more than just your simple, you know, what am I thinking, Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter game. You actually have to learn certain moves and practice, practice them in uh, various things. The graphics don't look bad, but the uh, the artwork for the ad, very stereotypical 90s artwork. Uh, karate. Everyone wanted to do it, and hardly anyone was good at it. But it gave us Chuck Norris jokes, so there you go. Next page, we get the American Comics Entertainment ad with uh, a lot of uh, a lot of trade dress for Batman Nightfall, the uh, Superman Returns cards and trade, and a lot of stuff for Image and X-Men, because those were hot at the time. And in fact, it does include some hot comics. Uh, or, hold on, let me say that again. Hot comics. Uh, let's see what we've got here. Archer and Armstrong, number 0, 2, and 8, uh, selling for 10 bucks, As well as Batman 191 and 192 for 10 bucks. Uh, Eternal Warriors, yeah, I don't get it. Um... Holy cow, Harbinger, number two and four, with a coupon, is selling for 75 <sighs> Whatever. $30 for a max number one or two, or I'm sorry, a number one glow-in-the-dark issue. Okay. Let's see. What the heck? Unity number zero. It's the red version, whatever that is. Going for $150. Even weirder, Wildcats. Yes, the Jim Lee image title, number one gold, going for $100. And if anyone can pick these up in a back issue bin for 5 bucks or less, I would. Well, I'd give you the official Guy Gardner seal of approval and a mention on the show. That's probably worth far less than what you pay for it in the back issue bin as well. A few pages in, we get another PSA for AIDS awareness, uh, saying, You may think it's not your problem, and this one is actually centered around Green Lantern. And it looks like it might be Joe Statenard. It looks, however, it might be a bit rushed, because Hal really looks kind of wonky here. But the characters that the... Uh, basically, what that sets up is in the first panel, it's got a angry mob of people chasing these two people who... <sighs> Sadly, are very stereotypically gay-looking. Uh, one of them looks very Freddie Mercury with the mustache and jacket, and the other one has a very sort of blondish afro and very gaunt figure. It's I don't know whether you'd be 
offended by this, but uh, it is the kind of thing where these characters have a look that might lead people to believe that they were gay. And the fact that they're being chased out of a town by a mob with <laughs> some of them are, some of them have bats in it. I don't know if they're all, you know, got their fists balled up. And Green Lantern flies in, of course, and tells them just because people are gay doesn't mean that they're carrying the HIV virus. And uh, he mentions the fact that you need to get more information and we need to basically inform ourselves and learn about what's going on. And if we do, we'll be able to uh, slow the growth of AIDS within the communities. And It also gives uh, uh, numbers to the National AIDS Hotline. Uh, so not the not one of the better AIDS PSAs. I think it kind of fails because it really does have some horrible stereotypes in there, but it is Green Lantern and it is Hal Jordan. So if you're a Hal Jordan fan, there it is. Then the next page, (sighs) coming in December, Lobocop, the best itch of law enforcement by Alan Grant and Mark Edmund. And you get a sort of Ed 209 Robocop Lobo mashup. And I guess the artwork is very uh, dynamic, but it is Lobo. It is the 90s. It is ridiculous. The Guy Talk page has its stereotypical complaining and congratulating of Guy's issue number 10. Uh, One guy, Charles Brown from uh, Brentwood, New York, writes in with a sort of top five list of jokes about Guy Gardner, and Guy retorts back to him saying, Chuck, baby, you could sub on the Chevy Chase show. Which, if you didn't know, the Chevy Chase show was a, well, it was kind of a late night, uh, sort of late night with David Letterman program starring Chevy Chase that I think ran for about a week and then was pulled because it was awful. Chevy Chase can't interview anyone and Aside from maybe vacation, it's not really that funny either. But it also mentions in the Guy Talk ad that this officially is the last issue of Guy Gardner. But that doesn't mean Guy Gardner's going away. Nope. There's just a title change. And next month, Guy will be coming back in a new title, Guy Gardner Warrior. So, got that to look forward to. And an interesting new costume for Guy. So, more stuff to look forward to. The final, or not the final page, but the back inside cover is The Dark Knight Fights to Save Gotham City from Its Deadliest Enemy. It's Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, the animated movie. Which, in my estimation, and I think a lot of people's estimation, is probably the Batman movie that got the Batman character the most right. I mean, a lot of people will proclaim The Dark Knight or even Batman Begins to be one of the uh, greatest Batman movies. Others may say the original Tim Burton, Michael Keaton one is great. But for my money, I think this one got it right. It could also be that, well, Bruce Tim and Paul Dini and the rest of the crew who was behind this movie really know their comic book stuff and didn't shy away from making Batman an actual comedic character. And by comedic, I mean comic booky, I guess. So, excellent movie. If you haven't seen Batman Mass of the Phantasm, definitely go out and see it. 
And finally, the back outside cover is for RoboCop 3. First time on Genesis in Game Gear, Game Gear, half man, half machine, all action. <sighs> and if it's half as good as RoboCop 3 the movie, it's about 5% good then. But that does it for ads. Uh, I'd like to mention, again, like uh, most issues of uh, Guy Gardner and Green Lantern from this time, none of these have been reprinted in trade or anything. However, uh, I'm hoping that very soon that they'll be showing up on Comixology. So keep your eye out for that if you want to go collect these. But that does it for the issue, that does it for ads, and that does it for the show. I hope you guys will come back next week as we're going to be, well, stepping into a turning point of both Green Lantern and Guy Gardner. Green Lantern is going to be dealing with his feelings about the destruction of Coast City. Plus, we're going to be getting a new writer on for uh, Green Lantern in Mr. Ron Mars. And he'll be taking the character in a, well, let's say an interesting and controversial route. Over in Guy Gardner... Guy gets a new costume, and he gets to deal with some, well, heavy issues as well, mainly with his family. But all of that will be coming in, well, one week, so I hope that you guys will come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, have a good weekend, and we'll see you then. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Eagle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scandal the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting on. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast. Feel free to leave a review there. And if you're in another country, shoot me an email, and I'll read the review on the next show. You can also search me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, the Greenland Podcast. The opening music for today's show is Baby Come Back, from the band Player, off their album Baby Come Back, the best of player. I guess it's a Greatest Hits album of Player. So, there you go. If for some odd reason you want to buy the CD, and who knows, maybe you do, I would suggest that you go to tutufreaks.libson.com, click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page, and go buy the song, go buy the CD, or go download the song from there. You can get 
pretty much anything that your little heart could desire at Amazon.com. And if you do go to Amazon, please go through the Two True Freaks website. If you do that, a small amount of money goes back to Two True Freaks, making sure that Chris and Scott have a wonderful new year filled with podcasting things. Like that.